Ringer Films and HBO's third installment of the Music Box series is listening to Kenny G. The film takes a humorous but incisive look at the saxophonist Kenny G, the best-selling instrumental artist of all time and quite possibly one of the most famous living musicians. Listening to Kenny G unravels the allure of the man who played jazz so smoothly that a whole new genre formed around him and questions fundamental assumptions about art and excellence in the process. You can find Listening to Kenny G on HBO or HBO Max on Thursday, December 2nd. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he just joined the tracksuit mafia and is ready to answer any questions. It's Andy Greenwald! Ring-a-ding-ding, bro. Happy holidays. Missed you. Um, I know that you missed me on text too, but it was because I was watching the whole first season of Wheel of Time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? Why, why, why are you laughing? Do you really watch? Did you know that shit is a hit? No, I didn't watch it. I'm sorry, people who did. I just feel bad because we did have time off. And I do think that some of our listeners are like, time off means our guys, our guys, Chris and Andy, are going to watch some TV shows. I watched some TV. I watched some Yellow Jackets. That shit is banging. I can't wait to talk more about Yellow Jackets. The three episodes that have been up so far, uh, there's lots of stuff that's on right now. I can't wait to talk with you about it. See, Chris, because I, okay, full disclosure, I I started Yellow Jackets. It didn't grab me, didn't Mm -hmm. sting me if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but enough enough people have been hollering that I, this is one of those ones where I got to revisit. Well, I, you know, I, I, I got the brother-in-law text about it. No way, the Juice Wolf. <laughs> Shout out to Brad, the original Juice Wolf. Yeah, he was like, I'm loving the show. And I'm like, Jesus, this show is popping off. This show really is. Original series, Yellow Jackets. I feel like people should know we're talking about it. It's like uh, uh, Lord of the Flies-ish, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, basically a, uh, I guess, a chronology or time hopping. So it takes place uh, some somewhat in the 90s and then somewhat in present day, going back and forth from this traumatic accident that this uh, girls' soccer team experiences in their childhood to their uh, adult lives, where most of which are relatively shattered, which they are trying to piece together and piece together what happened to them when they had this plane crash uh, while at a, at a soccer tournament or on their way to a soccer tournament. And so it stars Melanie Linsky and Christina Ricci and uh, Juliette Lewis. I love it. Uh, great it's cast. been a big hit in the house. It's got a great 90s soundtrack. I don't know if you noticed it was, uh, it started thinks Craig Wedren. Wedren, is that his name? Yeah. And uh, Anna Warrenker did this music and there's a lot of really good music supervision uh, needle drops in there. I, I don't want to like 
I don't want to name drop or like out anybody here, but I will say that Craig Wedren, who does a lot of scoring work uh, and is obviously very influential in the post-punk uh, uh, yeah. and our post-punk memory banks, in addition to our, our playlist, is doing pretty good work with um, uh, yoga sound baths for uh, camping parents, uh, elementary school parents. Is like, that he true? He's really found the next. Yeah. So he makes yeah. like what, like playlists for yoga or what? No, no. First of all, lovely guy. But like at, uh, th- I-, I will just say there, I've attended a school event where he has sort of like made a sound bath with like yoga bowls That's and cool. different things for people to like bliss out on. Like this is the, what happens next for indie rockers. Why, why do all LA parents make what they do sound like they're in the Carlisle group? And they're just like, I can't really say. <laughs> But uh, mem- you know, cast member for Walking Dead may or may not have been there. I'm not allowed to like the Secret Service isn't coming for you if you say that a ex member of Shudder to Think made some. Beautiful I think music. he's proud of what he did. <laughs> I'm not trying to like geotag either of our children. I I know I know. I think the members of the Carlisle group are like, yep, that's my kid, Rory, Rory Carlisle. You touch him, fifteen Black Ops people will be on your roof <laughs> right. before you put down the weapon. You know what I mean? It's like that's different. That's a different so, vibe. I've been enjoying uh, Yellow Jackets quite a bit. Uh, I'm trying to think of what other non-succession stuff. I have to admit that some of the stuff I've been watching is mm-hmm. uh, screeners, stuff that's coming soon. So I've really been enjoying. Oh, um, humble brag. Uh-huh. Go no, on. you have the same screeners, man. We share this stuff. Uh, I know, but, but you're like, I really, guys, I'm sorry. I know that you think of me as one of your own, like just a normal beer drinking Joe Popcorn, but... In my spare time, I watch upcoming programs. Well, I would like to say that for as much as I have been invested in what's new and what's happening on television, uh, last Friday, or I believe it was last Friday when the news broke that Stephen Sondheim had passed away, I found myself going into a little bit of a Sondheim hole. I love this for you. I didn't really, I can't say that I was like super familiar with his work outside of like, you know, the, um, the big ones, West Side Story, Into the Woods. I never, ever listened to or known anything about company which was uh-huh. randomly kind of like i was reading like the tributes to him the um the obituaries and like also just some essays about his work and routinely company just kept coming up and i and obviously i just read this um ao scott piece on tony kushner that's in the times magazine Great piece. this weekend Recommend amazing it. piece and tony kushner refers to company as one of like the great modernist art masterpieces along with like rights of spring so anyway i i was i watched the uh da pennebaker movie of the making of the original cast album of company and uh i was blown away i was like honestly melting with how like good it was it's been a great great year for music documentaries obviously music box from the ringer we've had get back the beatles one we've had the velvet underground documentary by todd haynes this is a little bit older but i was really captivated by by watching this. So if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the company doc by Pennebaker, it's on the Criterion channel. And I think I'm going to go see company when I go back to New York. It's an all-female reboot. It's a gender-swapped kind gender-swapped of. Gender-swapped yeah. reboot that's yeah. opening. Um, to the point about the documentary, yes, everyone needs to watch this. I think a lot of our listeners may be more familiar with um, Mulaney's and Armisen's documentary kind of thing. Yeah. tribute to it, yeah. which was an episode, well, a really good episode of Documentary Now, their series, which I think is streaming on Netflix, or at least it used to be. Um, yeah, the company doc is is amazing. It's really amazing because it captures a very specific New York that I think for people of our age exists only in like kind of hazy, our parents' cigarette smoke-stained memories. Yes, yeah. But everything about it from the sideburns to the energy 
to the two martini lunch that Steve Sondheim and Hal Prince have, followed by like a mug of like restorative beer. And it then looks they're like Guinness, like, yeah. And then they're like, just FYI, I've looked at the schedule and we're going to be going till 4 a.m. Like, I respect. I, I, I'm glad you brought up Sondheim. I, I, I said it before, like I do love this for you. Sondheim is a foundational pillar of my entire existence. Um, my father, no stranger to strong, dare I say, snobby opinions has for my entire life considered him like one of the true great living geniuses of Western civilization. So I grew did up- you, Did you inherit that or did you church. fight against it? Or like- Fought against it. I mean, the thing about Sondheim. It. So it is almost impossible, and it, you're not tuning into this podcast for us to be like, so let's talk about Steve. That's not what we do. And hopefully people have their own memories and their own explorations and what's incredible about a career. And if you don't know who this guy is, years. I mean, it's pretty, if you, you probably well, don't right. I, need us it, to tell you, but he wrote West Side, the, the lyrics to West Side Story, Into the Woods, Company, yeah. He, he is the titan of the American musical and truly in the most incredible, like how long is history? Like handholder from like learning at the feet of Oscar Hammerstein to mentoring Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, he turned the musical, which had been about Cowboys will sing to you yeah. into what does it mean to be an artist and a human being and why is everything hard? <laughs> you know, I mean, it is truly like masterpiece after masterpiece. And I think the people's entry into it is beautiful and varied as it needs to be for a beautiful and varied and six decade long career. Whereas people love the lyrics he wrote for West Side Story or the lyrics he wrote for Gypsy. And there are people who love Sweeney Todd. And maybe you saw the kids version of Into the Woods, basically, which a lot of high schools have only done the first act. Because right. the first act is, wow, fairy tales come to life. And the second act is, holy shit, everything is awful after the fairy tale ends. What happens happily ever after is not often so happy. Um, maybe, you know, send in the clowns and you don't know a little night music. Like that's, there's no wrong way to appreciate his genius. But to your point, the thing with me, my, my relationship with him was basically like the Socratic method of an older person being like, be quiet now, genius is playing. Right. And of course, fighting against it. And I actually remember my mother, too, fighting against it because the knock on Sondheim from a lot of quarters was that it was too cerebral. Too brilliant, it's yeah. No, it's no, no secret that his other passion in life was was puzzles. Like, he was the New York Magazine crossword editor in his spare time at the beginning of the magazine's crossword puzzle. And he, this I learned this this weekend. I thought this was apocryphal and a rumor, but apparently after Merrily We Roll Along bombed on Broadway in 83, he seriously told people he was quitting the theater because it had broken his heart and he was going to get into video game design because he <laughs> loved the emerging field of video games. That would have been loved... dope if Stephen Sondheim had, had created Halo. Right? right? <laughs> but like apparently like Mist. Remember Mist? Like yeah. we kind of walked through rooms and looked at stuff. Like that was what he loved. And that, that all makes sense. But so I, I understood in the way that like your parents tell you something is good, that it was good. Like I remember being dragged to an art museum and being like, look longer at this. Yeah. And you're like, uh, I was only when, when like with the early days when they used to take me to the Philly art museum, I only rocked with the, like the, um, the, the armor. The armor. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course. That was like, can we please go look at the swords now? Um, for me, what cracked was in eighth grade, Chris, you're going to love this content. Um, <laughs> Kyle, let it run. Don't just keep your finger off the edit button. No, it doesn't matter. I did, because I was a cool happening cat, I did stage crew for the high school musical. And the high school musical was A Little Night Music, which is a late 70s musical by Sondheim. And I wa had to watch it every day because I was like helping with the lighting board or whatever. Slowly, I learned every word. Mm -hmm. Slowly, I started realizing how the words fit together, how it was clever and emotional. And it, w it was like a puzzle. And it just sort of, 
Remember those magic eye puzzles that he probably loved that were big in the 90s where you would stare at something long enough and suddenly you would see an image? Yeah. That's what it was like watching something complicated turn into something, come into focus and turn into something beautiful. And that's probably still my favorite show because of it. And so when I was thinking about his legacy, and we, we're not going to do it justice. We can't. I mean, Company is a modernist masterpiece. Assassins is one of the most transgressive things ever performed. Sunday in the Park with George might be, is in the argument for the most powerful statements, artistic statements ever about the challenge of making art. Um, I realized the thing that he taught me was patience. Mm-hmm. Because... There's a step of loving stuff that's natural to everyone, and I see it in my kids. Where like my older daughter's like reads books nonstop all the time. I couldn't be more proud. I suggest a book that doesn't have a dragon or a school for wizardry in it, and she's like, "I will never read that." Yeah, like because we, of course, it feels good to love what we love. Spoiler alert: That's what we're like now when books don't have a found bag of cash or drugs. <laughs> I will absolutely. Absolutely confirm. Or tradecraft by spies. Time time is a flat circle. I have become as close-minded now as I was then, but there was a brief flowering, a renaissance, if you will, in the middle. Just that art rewards patience and things that are challenging can reveal themselves to you, not because you're told it's good, but because you can find your own way into it. And that is the history of my relationship with his music. And I realized that thinking back at this incredible, I mean, he's just always been there. And what was kind of beautiful about if something can be beautiful about losing a Titan, for me, it was two things. One was in this, you know, the New York Times had an interview that he had done six days before. Yeah. And you can read it online. Um, and he was just talking about the new West Side Story movie and the Assassins uh, restaging and the company, the version of company that Chris is talking about um, and his legacy. And also that on Wednesday, he drove into the city from Connecticut at age 91 and saw two shows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listeners, I couldn't do that now. <laughs> I am half a century younger. I could not do that now. But also, I found out the news. I got like the, you know, the New York Times alert when I came out of a movie theater seeing Encanto, the new Disney movie with my family, with absolutely stunning songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And Chris, earmuffs, Encanto is fucking awesome. It is a genius God-level movie that I think breaks 60 years of Disney animated tradition and forms it into something new. It's a hugely important and significant film that I will browbeat new dad Sean Fennessy into letting me talk about on his podcast because I feel like now that's a safer spot for me. Sure. Regardless, here are these songs with these like multi- No drawing and no children on the watch. <laughs> never. Multi, just like, you know, uh, multi-voiced, complicated counter melodies and just all these things that he made normal and common and Lin-Manuel is just busting them out in this beautiful family story you know it's kind of amazing to see to to see the like someone stride an entire genre's lifespan like a colossus and then it's still going it was I was moved by that you know in the in the company documentary there's this great scene made me think of you where uh I think they're doing you could drive a person crazy and the the three the three women are doing that song and they keep getting to the Bobby Booby part and he, oh, yeah. co- he comes into the studio to correct one of the women about, I think it's the woman who's like Mitzi on Happy Days, or she winds up going on to be on Happy Days. Right. And uh, he comes in to be like, you're saying booby wrong? And she's like, booby. And he, she's like, bubby, booby, bubby, say goody, now say bubby. <laughs> and it's this great moment of not only is there a little bit of like the Jewish humor of it all, but it's also like this great portrait of the work that goes into making something seem effervescent 
mm-hmm. and see, make something seem like it's just uh, springing from an artistic reservoir within the performer and how much like precision goes into the pronunciation of a vowel. And I, I thought about that a lot also watching uh, Get Back. You know, I mean, just y- you, you listen to those Beatles records and I know not all of them were made, obviously, in the, sta- in the style that they made mm-hmm. Let It Be, but you go and you watch them kind of just noodle and noodle and noodle and noodle and noodle until they get the hook, you know? Mm-hmm. And just, it, I, I've been very into watching these sort of process these artistic process depictions. I think it's kind of interesting because what you were saying about how we only wa- we only read books that are either Pelicanos 20 years ago or Littell, whatever. Like th- these are the books that we like and that's true and we love, we love. But I do think there is an interesting thread in what you're saying, which is that when you're younger or when we were younger, like the idea of the artist as unassailable God is really important because they're the ones you're entrusting to lift you out of your existence and mm-hmm. in, illuminate you, right? And transform you. And I feel at this moment, and uh, well, yeah, at this moment in life, there's something that I'm finding even more moving and certainly essential right now to see gods become human. And you, so you read the Sondheim interview and he's just like, I'm a procrastinator. I've always been a procrastinator, you know? And I just, I, I wish someone was pushing me, but what, you know, it's like, really? Like you could have rested on a forest worth of laurels in 1965. You could have just quit and, on West Side Story and just been like. <laughs> yeah, that was that was Mark Harris's uh, opening line in his really strong remembrance yeah. in New York Magazine. And yeah, you watch, and by the way, just sidebar, I did I did call my dad to be like, is this a moment of emotional father-son connection? Like your 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 hero is gone. And he was like, "Well, I've been anticipating this moment," and I was like, "Right, I, I I know that's that's it's tough." And then he just started going on and on about how he wished one of these damned articles would talk about would let him know the status of his, I guess, last unfinished work, which was the Boone. Like he was doing a multi like a two part. One musical, but like first act, second act, based on different Buñuel movies. Yeah, the including dis- the discreet dis- charm of the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie with the, yeah. the uni- uniting theme being dinner parties. I mean, what the fuck? And so my father's furious that this is not being released anywhere. <laughs> anyway, so maybe one of our listeners knows that if the songs will come out someday, um, right? But then you go to get back, and it is like to me, it is trippier. Which I have not finished it. I think you've watched more of it than I have, but. It is trippier than any science fiction movie ever could be. Absolutely. Because all of a sudden, gods, deities, in a time that only exists in either memories or history books or like found footage of Carnaby Street or maybe, maybe, maybe the first Austin Powers movie watched on a like a projector, reel to reel, is just real. That was just that was just Tuesday, man. That was just Tuesday, and those were the cigarettes, <laughs> and that was the beer, and that was the turtleneck, and that was the beard, and that was where they were emotionally. And it's just a fucking trip, man. Everything great started as, I don't know, what about this? Yeah, I have this, but eh, I don't know. Try this chord. It's really, yeah, it's been it's been a really fun year in terms of watching uh, that, that kind of stuff, that kind of creative process stuff. Um, Do you, I, wait, before we move on off Get Back, I have to ask you one more thing about it. Yeah, sure. So, big picture... How how incredible this is! Just it's incredible, and I'm glad it's there for me to to go back to get back to. I'm going to watch more of it. It absolutely makes sense since there is no, it doesn't have a story to tell. It's just this treasure trove to present, mm-hmm. and 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 so not just the the way that it's been doled out, but I think a huge win obviously for 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 the plus and for everyone to have like 
something compelling. So, and sort I'm so of, happy for Chapek. Exactly. It's a big win for him. But also just cross-culturally, like, you know, in the same way The Last Dance was semi-monoculturally yes. uniting. Yes. It was a cool thing over a holiday weekend. But was there any part of you, Chris, in, in consuming this that wished it had been curated in a different way? That Obviously, we live in an era where the expectation is everything is always going to be available to you. And so maybe that's what this needed to be, which was, here's what I found. I'm going to do my best to clean it up and just push it to the center of the table, make of it what you will. There's a part of me, though, that was fighting that, being like, man, I really would be curious, in the same way the Todd Haynes documentary was so artistically curated and directed. Sure. I would wish someone with a more specific authorial bent or voice was like, here are the, not even hour and a half, here's the three hours of this two and a half hours of this that you need to see and here's why. Well, necessity is the mother of invention and Todd Haynes made the movie the way he did because there is no significant amount of live footage of the Velvet Underground playing together, especially the uh, iteration of the band that he was most concerned with, which was the John Cale version. I'm going to those movies for entirely different things. I'm going to the Velvet Underground movie because I'm curious what Todd Haynes thinks the Velvet Underground meant. You know, and Mm -hmm. he tells that story and he gives that essay. He presents that thesis that this was this singular moment where like pop and avant-garde came together to create something completely new. I watched the Beatles movie because I want to hang out with the Beatles. Like there is no landing the plane. I know what happens. Mm-hmm. I know who they were. Mm-hmm. It, I, I, I don't know that I would consume it, but if you told me that this movie was 15 one-hour episodes and that it included several scenes of Michael Lindsay Hogg smoking a cigar with Glenn Johns and then maybe Ringo kind of being... I, I probably would be like pretty pro. I I think that we're kind of entering this... Especially we're going to come across this a lot more in the future because so many artists so tirelessly document every moment mm-hmm. of their lives. That's right. That I think... It'll really be up to you as to whether or not you want to participate in that immersive experience of this is just what this person did for two weeks or 12 months or 10 years. And, uh, you know, I I had the chance to watch the Juice World documentary that The Ringer, uh, that Sean and Bill and Noah did uh, with Tommy Oliver directing. And that's very much like a um, like a found footage. It's documentary footage the entire time with very few exceptions. And it, it is a style of watching. I mean, there's there's some some uh, title cards in the Beatles doc to give you some context. But for the most part, you know, you're watching real life happen in front of you. I kind of almost would be like, yeah, if you guys wanted to give me 20 hours of this, I, I also wonder whether or not there's more to come. Yeah, I, 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 I do agree with you because like the one part I can't stop thinking about early on in the first segment of get back is, you know, I think I think the the first day in Twickenham is like a Thursday or something, and then there's another day, and then there's the weekend, and then it's basically like Monday morning, and they all show up, and someone's like, "How was your weekend?" And they right. all, George kind of makes eyes, or John makes eyes, like, and it's like that's, I find that very moving. I don't know, maybe it's just where I'm at in the world, but it's like it's I've thought about the Beatles or I've thought about musical heroes of mine in many, many, many ways that are generally about my relationship to their art and the finished product. I have never once thought about whether George Harrison was hung over on a certain January day sure. in 1969. Right. Like that is, it's a trip. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a trip. It's actually, all of this is, is, you know, the other week or the other month when we had, um, uh, Tom Vitalion who wrote the book about working with Tony Bourdain, like that was mm-hmm. a similar kind of like man versus myth moment for me when I, 
sort of you sort of have to reckon with. Myths are important. The legend matters. It's good that they printed the legend. Like it's what we work with and what we fit ourselves into. But there is something that is devastating and unsettling in a different way to just just people, man. Yeah. Um, So before we get to Hawkeye, before we get to Sam Boyd, I just thought I would uh, mention, did you see this, uh, the news about Dunk and Egg, the... Yes, I, I said, I'm I said glad you're very, mentioning this. Very formally, like I just learned how to speak. I was like, did you see the dunk and egg news? Thank you, Siri. Uh, <laughs> um, the reason we're bringing it up, there's lots of Game of Thrones stuff in the works. There's the uh, House of the Dragon show coming next year. But Dunk and Egg is being executive produced and written, at least now, uh, by Steve Conrad, who did two shows specifically that you and I have, I don't think, really spent much time on... Um, Patriot, which ran for two seasons on Amazon, and uh, what was the other one? Perpetual Grace LTD. Perpetual Grace LTD, which I watched a few episodes on. I think that was on Epics or Stars or something. Uh, he's a very unique writer. He's got a very unique sensibility, a very unique sense of humor. Uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of like early Coen Brothers sometimes, the way that like the kind of like characters and the performances that usually come out of his pieces. But um, Patriot is like something that I, for some reason, I have never really been able to like get my claws into but I a lot of people who I love love that show and it is he's definitely considered one of like the more talented writers out there I was curious whether you had a reaction to this news that he's gonna get to go play in the sandbox yeah I'm excited to talk about it not thrilled to once again point out this massive blind spot that I have and that we both have with a creator who seems right up our alley and uh there is no show that has more consistently been mentioned to me as and to us I think as something that we would love than Patriot. And I feel terrible that I, I, you know, I I started it, didn't get back to it, deluge of other content, never returned. A mistake. We should also mention that he also has currently a a New York neo-noir show that's stop-motion animated plastic dolls called Ultra City Smiths. This guy's fascinating. And all in all, you know, I was about to put a caveat about like commenting on an unmade show, uh, but that's what we do around here. So I feel totally fine actually saying this. The back of the napkin scratch pad notes on this is just positive, right? I, in some ways, this is a segue to talking about Hawkeye because this, this town is still, and I am happy about this, kind of based on the idea. I don't know if it's true anymore, but it's definitely an idea or it's something that, you know, that, that, feels existentially important to say that um, the artistic vision is, is what matters most. Mm-hmm. That's how it ought to work and still how it sometimes sometimes works. The uglier shareholder-driven truth underneath this is what people really want is a caretaker mm-hmm. for the more valuable IP that really is the lifeblood of the industry. And good things can come from well-managed IP. Like we, I don't know, Loki. I thought Loki was really great. It's very possible that we're going to, we love Mandalorian. Like we're going to love things in that vein. I just took this as a kind of a positive sign because again, House of the Dragon might be really good. The the upcoming, the one that's actually being filmed, the mm-hmm. Game of Thrones spinoffs. And I, and I have no ill will towards any of the people involved in it. They could be geniuses and hopefully they are. It did feel like, at least in terms of reading the tea leaves of the press releases, which is what we do on this podcast, a very intentional and more conservative reset from the decision that didn't work out in terms of the Game of Thrones uh, spinoffs, right? Which was the first series they were going to do that never actually officially had a name, I don't think. Uh, it was, no, like, it was the, the Lannisters. Yeah, right. It was like early Lannisters, and, I think early uh, 
or early Starks. Yeah, Naomi Watts was going to be in it. And from what we heard about it, you know, second or third hand, it was it was pushing the envelope, and it was a different show mm-hmm. than what Game of Thrones was. And they looked at it, and they were like, nope, we want to give people what we know they like, which is dragons. And they got Miguel Sapochnik, who directed some of the biggest battle episodes, and they just got that ball rolling again, and, you know, it, in a way that felt comfortable and safe, and hopefully will be even more than that. This suggests, and I'm hopeful, that they are taking a more wide-ranging set of meetings for these things, that they have these properties, and they are letting people come in and say, like, you know, you're, we know you're going to do what you're going to do. Yeah. And we want that. And we want to see if this potentially awkward marriage can work. So that's a lot of talking about a non-existent to this point project written by a guy who has made three shows we haven't watched about a series of novellas that we haven't read. <laughs> uh, good job by us. But Perpetual Grace is cool. I thought it was it was a cool show. I don't know why I didn't finish it. I got like three or four episodes into it, but I thought it was it was really pretty interesting. I mean, he's got a really interesting, twisty mind, and this is a story about like you know, basically, I, from what I understand, and I'm glad Jason Concepcion and Mallory Rubin aren't here to dunk and egg on us, but <laughs> like, it's kind of like a medieval buddy comedy. It seems like yeah. If so, that's the case, then this guy this is the right man for the job. Anyway, um, it's cool. It's interesting. Yeah, so let's talk about Hawkeye before we get into our interview with Sam. Uh, three episodes have gone up. I, I've watched the three. Have you, did you get a chance to see the third one? I, I did. Uh, this is something that I think it, we didn't get a chance to talk about this show even yet because they put two out Thanksgiving week and then the third one just went up. It is, uh, would you say, a loose adaptation of the Matt Fraction, David Aja run on e, I Hawkeye? Think- kind extremely loose okay extremely loose uh it is closer for me to uh a it was more like a pg-13 version of the shane black uh holiday action thrillers of our childhood whether that's like lethal weapon or you know that that genre of Mm -hmm. it's a, a a christmas kind of atmosphere this is set in new york city over six days before chris over the six days before christmas it stars Jeremy Renner reprising his role as Clinton Barton slash Hawkeye as he is stuck in New York City, wants to get home to his family, but first has to recover the Ronin suit that his character wore in, in Infinity War, where he was like chopping people up, right? Or was that an endgame? His endgame. It's, it's where what, he's it's just how, like the... How, how'd you spend your blip, Clint? Exactly. Well. Um, I got this cool haircut and I just started <laughs> killing guys. Um, that is That section of endgame is... One of the darker kind of passages, I mean, lots of stuff, dark stuff happens in Endgame, but that, his whole, like, I'm rolling through uh, the underworld, killing the mob, is not very, it's not a very long passage of the movie, but it's definitely like, that That looks interesting. I would like to spend time there. So I was pretty enticed by that. Obviously, like the, like the Renner performances I've seen in the past, I was interested by the Haley Steinfeld edition, making her Kate Bishop, having her learn the ways of, of, of superhero And then like all Marvel shows, they just pepper it with this incredible uh, extended cast, whether it's Tony Dalton, Vera Farmiga, et cetera, et cetera. So we get these three episodes. Um, and I will say this, the very thing that I find super refreshing about this show, which is mm-hmm. the fact that it is not cosmic, that there is no yeah. reality bending, that it does not seem to, as you have yet, have anything to do with the multiverse or, um, you know, Kang or anything is also the reason why I think people will probably feel most muted about this series. Mm. I could be wrong. There's three more episodes to come. There seems to be a like small, like, who is this character thing, which I, I, th- I don't think is going to reveal anyone of, of super significance. I mean, I could be wrong. 
can I say who I think it is? I think sure. like I haven't. It, it's D'Onofrio playing the kingpin again, right? Like, that oh, is that it? Pretty that's that seems, the, that's that seems clear to me. Okay. What What you don't know, Chris, because you didn't finish watching the Marvel TV Netflix shows, is that in the last episode of Jessica Jones, uh, the kingpin is revealed to be Mephisto. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> You're burnt. I'll always anyway. come back for Mephisto. Andy, what do you think of the show? Um, well, I'll start with the with the strong positive that you picked up on one of the many reasons why the Matt Fraction David Aha series is one of the greatest comics, superhero comics of the last 20 years. The art, story, character, all that. But Matt Fraction zeroed in on something essential about Hawkeye, which is, you know, this is what all great writers do. Like, oh, the thing that you think is the lamest part about someone, that's the best part. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to show you why. And it's that he's just a dude who can shoot arrows. And so he gets the living crap beaten out of him. And some of the greatest sequences drawn by AHA are like Clint wearing a T-shirt covered in Band-Aids holding a package of frozen peas to his neck. And I think this the probably the my favorite thing that Jonathan Igla, who is a former Mad Men writer who developed this for television, took from that phenomenal run was that very, very, very ground level, bare bones, broken bones, understanding of what makes the character unique and different from gods like Thor. And so that runs through just, you know, the the shots of him teaching Kate how to dress a wound to shopping for a Neosporin to the show's other great conceit, in my opinion, which is the musical within the show, uh, Rogers, the the Avengers musical, which is very funny and great idea. Great stuff. Loved it. Other than that, Chris, I don't know why, but this might be the show that's broken me. Yeah. I don't know why. We all we all have our own internal snaps. Shout out to Thanos um, <laughs> when it comes to this stuff. It may very well be because I love that comic book so much. And this series has helped itself liberally, if not generously, to its iconography and fonts and style and some of its storyline, including the pizza dog and the tracksuit guys, but it fails that story so just essentially in the same way that it kind of fails all of the stories that it's telling so far because it is an impossible task. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this a hundred different ways, so maybe it's not worth belaboring it. I just really felt it so strongly in this, which is, look, it's really, really fucking hard to make a TV show. It's really, really, really hard to make a good TV show. I don't know how you make a multi-part, multi-level, multi-format IP Hydra like a Marvel series. I just, I just don't. Like if this, when we first talked about our optimism for these series, it's like, oh, they could do small little things. They could Mm -hmm. do small runs. Literally this comic run or uh, Willow Wilson and and Alfona's uh, character creating Ms. Marvel run, which is going to be, you know, uh, harvested to bits for the upcoming series as well. Those make more sense as TV shows. That's kind of exciting. Um, but the thing I don't, that made... Well, yeah. I don't think the they anticipated made, not having movies, which is sort of the, the problem that they ran into. I, I would actually say they definitely didn't anticipate the, the last year, but I think what they did anticipate was movies starting to mean less and less as a thing mm. and streaming meaning more and more. And so the idea that these would... They were never going to be standalone objet d'art. They were also never just going to be spackle like the, you know, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. shows were. They're just going to be more of it. And when you have more of it, there's just more 
chefs in the kitchen and more masters to feed and more voices to listen to. And so how are these three episodes even functioning? Okay, so a standalone story uh, with a very specific tone about the least powerful Avenger trying to get home to his family for Christmas that also needs to reckon with that character's extremely homicidal, verging on sociopathic killing spree. Look, if you want to watch five that. five years. Watch Mayor of Kingstown. <laughs> exactly. You have that somewhere else. Can I tell you, I think I did mention this to you, but the third episode of Mayor of Kingstown, I watched it and I got to the end and I liked it, you know, and really immediately thought about the fact that I didn't know anyone else to tell that to because it's so depraved that I've actually run out of people to share it with, you know, like there's nobody else in my life. Who's like, it was amazing when, when Mike McCluskey organized both the white power gang and the Crips to execute that child murderer. And I was like, I just have run out of friends. I'm out. Are, are you like Ethan hunt with your knock list of like the nine people who you can say these things to and feel safe? Yeah. And you have to find a, that. I got zero. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, servicing that dark history, uh, not in Kingstown, but in the Marvel Universe writ large. Also, this absurd family that Joss Whedon saddled the character with uh, in the Avengers movies, and also introduce Haley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop, and also introduce Echo, Marvel Universe's first prominent character with a, with a hearing disability or hearing loss, and also move the larger MCU project forward. It's exhausting. It's exhausting just saying those things. And it, it, with so many different strands, how are any of them going to be satisfying? So there are moments where I'm like, okay, this is a fun action show, the the bow and arrow battle. Yeah, that was cool. The snow-dappled streets of summertime Atlanta was very... Um, <laughs> You're such a stickler for... That drove me crazy. Locational uh, accuracy. I just feel like if this is a New York show, spend the money to change the way the street name signs are dangling across the middle of the road because they right. don't do that in Queens. I, right. I, I get it, but that that that's a thing for me. You're you're Disney. You can afford that. Um, that bit is good. Actually, the scene on the subway afterwards is everything that the show ought to be. Like, I get that. And I bet because of this grueling so many, so many chefs in the kitchen process, I would bet Jonathan Igla, a man who we've never met, will circle that moment when the two Hawkeyes are sitting on the subway and be like, that's the show I wanted to make. And I'm justifiably proud that I got that scene in there. Sure. And then I had to go back with a backstory for a character that we've already greenlit a spinoff for that we may or may not be interested in. And we burn Zon McClarendon, one of who is revealing himself to be one of the great TV actors of our time right. in a glorified uh, cameo for five minutes. I mean, I I'm very frustrated by it, Chris, and I'll, but I'll spin back to one positive. Haley Steinfeld's really good. She is. And I I, I kind of wish just that I, I rarely feel this way about Marvel movies. Like I, you know, there's always the debate is like, are these movies for kids? I don't think they're necessarily for kids. I think they're for fans, or I think that they're for people who are I think they're for fans. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. they're for people who are very much in the um they're conversant in the language of of this world. And like that is uh, there's a very warm uh, welcoming feeling to a lot of Marvel stuff. I would say even in the early Whedon days, that that DNA is there in a lot mm -hmm. of the the film stuff. Is that that bantery, friendly, um, surrogate family continually being built vibe is like very welcoming. And I I so I I don't want to make it sound like what I want is for the Hawkeye show to be like French Connection, which is not what I'm saying. But I do wish there was 
a little bit of tonal variance. Like I kind of wish Kate and Hawkeye would swear at one another a little bit. Like, you know, like I wish it had some attitude. You're talking about they, voice. Yeah. And I wish like there was just sometimes I wish there was like, just have like somebody in here dropping F-bombs. And, Look, and Chris, there's no better. I totally understand what you're saying. This is a show about a character whose one ability is to use a bow to shoot high velocity arrows at people. And yet, for all the magical arrows he has that have suction cups and growing putty and pim particles, none of them have sharp edges that enter people's bodies and hurt them. Right. That's that's the MCU, baby. Right. right. Welcome. Right. You know, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, but the thing about the tonal stuff that isn't working for me is I think Haley Steinfeld is really good. I think the Kate Bishop character, as created by my friend Alan Heinberg in Young Avengers 1 back in 2004, phenomenal. And Jim Chung, he would always credit the artist as well, and I should have. Um, just a great character and the kind of vibe and energy that'll be really fun in whatever this next iteration of Avengers is going to be on the small screen or the big screen or all the screens. Renner is a different energy, man. And I'm finding it harder so, to hang with him. Yeah, I don't. And, I mean, I, I know that you've stopped watching Kingstown. It's pretty, even in this day of like peak release schedule, it's pretty rare to see someone being number one on the call sheet on two shows that are airing on yes. different networks. And I wouldn't necessarily give him an Emmy for what he's doing on Mayor of Kingstown, but that definitely feels like the character that... I, that definitely feels like the actor Jeremy Renner wants to be is this kind yeah. of like latter day Robert Ryan haggard anti-hero working through some stuff I, dealing with the real world quote unquote whereas like this character that the like the version of Clint that he has played started mm-hmm. with almost a lobotomy from Loki and it's never really gotten his personality back you know and or I'm surprised one. that he actually still wants to do this because I saw some interview where he was like, well, yeah, I'd love it if he like, ran the West Coast Avengers and stuff like that. And I remember really liking those comics. I think. Me too. Those were dope. But like, it just doesn't seem like his heart is in it. You know, like, well, it, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what he's doing. Look, I mean, I noticed and I was joking with you about it before we recorded that like, and maybe the other shows had been this way too and I hadn't noticed, but the, the, the very lovely animated sequence that kicks off the first episode of Hawkeye after the interminable first Avengers Chitari kid Kate Bishop in a mansion with Brian Darcy James, AKA Broadway's original live yes. action Shrek yeah. as her dad. Like uh, that whole thing, there's a big animated thing where it's like, and the first credit is a Kevin Feige production. And look, no producer maybe in the history of Hollywood since Selznick deserves that more. Like I, I get it. But one of his least, I think, one of his more underrated talents has been on an extremely large and expensive scale to tweet through it. Mm-hmm. It has you have to be pretty egregious to be retconned or removed or recast. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah, casting Renner as Hawkeye was in the peak of we got Jerry Renner to take over this franchise. You know that that season in the Hollywood. I mean, can you? I mean, Gretchen Maul had that, and she got a Vanity Fair cover. Renner got Mission Impossible, The Avengers, and Born in mm-hmm. a very short same, uh, span of time. He's miscast. He's miscast for a version of Hawkeye that ought to exist at this moment to be beleaguered, fighting tracksuit mafias in New York, and passing a torch to Haley Seinfeld. And yet. He keeps lumbering ever onward, now burdened not just by his dour face, but also by this fucking family. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody cares about his family in Iowa. Like, I understand why that made sense for 
the part of the Avengers movies that were like the leftovers. Yeah, where it was like, surprise, he's got a family. You never knew Clint had like this like loving home life. But when Linda Cardellini on a soundstage, hopefully within walking or biking distance, e-biking distance from her home, is like, oh, does that remind you of Nat? Are you thinking about <laughs> Nat? Can you imagine her like in between takes, just like hopefully checking on her swelling portfolio being like, yeah. and remind me, who's Nat? Like who gives a, f-? you know, that whole thing. He does He does it. He keeps pushing. But now we're at this point where they're making a TV show based on kind of an original era, I got to say. You know, it's, it's, you see all the good intentions here. We have this great Fraction AHA comic. We have, we have a, we do have a point of view. We have a writer from Mad Men. We've got Haley Steinfeld. To Charming performers, yeah. Tony fucking we, Dalton's on this show. Like <laughs> Tony Dalton's on this show. Simon fucking Callow. From Four Weddings and a Funeral, and as you pointed out to me, the second Ace Ventura movie yeah. is in the show. Like, what? <laughs> when At least calls. briefly. Um, but it is not. I love, I know our listeners love hearing me rail against this. Like, it's like, it's like Ned Flanders stepping onto yeah, a Yeah, but rake. you know what? You get like, to do this because you fucking, like, you did time in the, in the Matt Fraction mines. You know what I mean? Like, you dug yeah. that stuff out of the tunnels. Like, you're allowed to have an opinion about this. I'm a little bit more lukewarm about it. I think that there was... I, I think that if you were like, this is a a Shane Black-esque action comedy set in New York City during the holidays, it's hard for me to imagine something so inert. But I'm hopefully like the, the last three kind of pick it up a little bit. But the ceiling, as we keep saying, is incredibly low. Yeah, it can be good. It can be, it'll probably be fine. It won't be bad. It's not bad. Like there are shows that are bad. You know yeah. what I mean? And And we should make that distinction very clearly. But as long as you have to do this, like, you know, as long as you have to keep casting doe-eyed seven-year-olds to understand the trauma of the characters we haven't met yet before we meet them, you can't make a Shane Black TV show. You're just not doing it. Also, you're not doing it. You're not. You're taking, you're harvesting a few pieces from this pie, a few pieces from that pie, and you're mixing it in to make the same dish they serve at the cafeteria every Wednesday. And like, okay, I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. Yeah. But man, those ingredients, some of those ingredients came from some pretty nice family farms. <laughs> Okay. Um, Andy, let's get into our interview with Sam Boyd. Sam is the creator of uh, and, and co-showrunner now of, of Love Life, which is on HBO Max. The first season starred Anna Kendrick. It was imagined as an anthology show that would take a different character's perspective on their romantic travails in New York City every season. They got uh, to do a second season. They got to do it with one of the best actors on television, William Jackson Harper, who you may know as Cheaty from uh, The Good Place. So we had Sam on to talk about this very different season from the first season, uh, which deals with a lot of different issues. It grapples with race and COVID and lots of stuff that's happened over the last couple of years in this country. I thought it was a really, really great uh, season of TV. And I was really happy to have uh, Sam back on the show. Anything you want to say before we get into it? Just that I also, you know, I think we start the interview this way. I did a 180 on the show. I was not here for the Anna Kendrick season. I came around and I really enjoyed this entire season, watched it all, really liked it, especially Will Harper's performance especially the supporting performance by comedian CP. Um, the one thing I didn't get a chance to say to Sam, but I'll say now before we get into the interview, if you are at all on the fence about watching the show, listen to this interview. If you are still on the fence about watching the show, I'm trying to think of a better dressed character, male character on television in the last 10 years than Will Harper's Marcus on this show. <laughs> the shirts? I mean, come on. He does. He, I, I could see this being really relevant to you. To me, I'm, I'm more of a Casey Dutton fan from Yellowstone, but I, I get what you're saying. I, I, I just feel like it's under, 
one of the things that Sam talks about in this interview that I really appreciate was that it is not actually, and you brought this up in a question, not to step on it, but it's not really a cutesy rom-com. It is a romantic yeah. show. The place that I think maybe, maybe it's Sam, maybe it's someone else involved with the production where it veers into Nancy Myers' territory in the best way is just what the dudes are wearing. Like when Blair Underwood shows up in episode seven, looking, looking like Tom Ford had painted him in a journal. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty cool. But I, this was a fun interview and I'm glad we got to do it. Yeah, so everybody enjoy our chat with Sam Boyd. We'll be back Sunday night with Succession uh, and we'll be back next Thursday with the usual watch repartee. Thank you to Kai McMullen for producing. Uh, have a nice weekend, everybody. We're going to do usual repartee next week? Yeah. Didn't you see that on the schedule? No. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Andy and I are so happy to be joined by Sam Boyd, the creator of Love Life, one of the, I guess, co-showrunners this season, which is something we're going to talk about with him. The second season is up in full on HBO Max, and uh, Andy and I were such fans of it, so we wanted to have Sam on the show to chat about it. Sam, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. And thank you, Sam, for coming on with me here in the spirit of the season. Forgiveness is the time uh, <laughs> around the holidays. I, no secret, I, I, I wasn't as high on the first season as Chris was and our end of the year guest Sam Esmail and I've come roaring back this season really enjoyed it <laughs> so thank you for your graciousness and coming on with me but also thank you for the second season thank you I appreciate it I was just ho hoping it would be like the leftovers of romantic comedy it's <laughs> kind of what I was it it, it, it was it was I, I didn't I appreciate also I don't think at least I didn't pick up on any particularly trolling elements of the story that you put in sure. just to upset me the way Damon did with the leftover season two, <laughs> yeah, like, which I think is healthier. Marcus's you know? boss isn't named Andy, I don't think so. Yeah, no, but I can go back and do, do a little ADR. You mean the way Justin throws horse was named Andy in season yeah. three of the leftovers? Mm -hmm. uh, that Sam, that actually does bring up an interesting question I wanted to start with is how often do you hear stuff like that? Where it's like people's relationship to the second season being completely different to the first one, because while there's connective tissue and it exists in this, in this New York that you've 
you've come up with with your collaborators. I wonder whether or not like the two seasons are distinct enough that it has separate sets of fans and separate sets of reactions. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you make stuff and you just are excited that anybody ever watches it. So I think on one level, it's it's mostly just, you know, I'm glad anybody who's finding the show this season or liking the show this season that maybe didn't find it, know about it, respond to it last year, um, that that's happening. I think, you know, we talked a lot in making the show about trying to hit this kind of same but different sweet spot where we were, you know, I think wanting certain things to carry over and and also wanting to just let it be something totally new, having that driven by the story and this new character and wanting to do that justice. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think uh, there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of stuff to watch. So I, I kind of get it either way. Well, let's let's rewind it to the to what you're talking about. The moment when you finish the first season, you have this great framework of an anthology series where you can tell different stories and you can pick up some similar things and change them. Um, can you talk us through how this developed organically? Not just wanting to tell Marcus's story, but also then the next step, which I think Chris and I were both really struck by and impressed by, which is then you felt clearly not to put words in your mouth, but that you know you would bring in other collaborators to help you stay true to the spirit of having uh, a person of color as your lead. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, from the very beginning of having the idea for the show, I had thought about this idea of resetting every season and following a new character and wanting to use that as an opportunity to explore as many different walks of life as possible. And for the characters, you know, just so that the stories were as interesting as they could be, for the characters to be different from each other. And, and that really it's about what they all have in common ultimately. Um, but, you know, Bridget and I co-show ran the first season and then mm-hmm. uh, Rochelle joined us for the second season. And, you know, so much of it was honestly starting with Will wanting to work with him, being a huge fan of his and feeling really lucky to be kind of at this, you know, to have this opportunity, right. Where it's like, not often that you're able to say, Hey, we have kind of a, a blank slate to do a season of TV and we can build it around someone that excites us. And all it really has to be is like about their dating life, you know? And so I think it was, it was really fun for us to just start with Will before we knew anything about the character or his name or his job or his friends or anything. And just really trying to to build it as a showcase for him as an actor you know, and being able to work with Rochelle on that in our writer's room. And, and, you know, I think also with season one, you know, being about a woman, I always am trying to kind of get out of the way as soon as possible and work with other people who do share the experiences of the characters or who, you know, are able to tell these stories so that, you know, everything can be as authentic and as rich as, as possible, you know, and, and really just cause that's, I think, again, what, what makes the stories better. I, I have to just jump in just because you mentioned Will. Sorry, Chris, but I, as, as I think I'm appointing myself the president of the Will Harper fan club here, um, <laughs> such an amazing showcase for him. And he, I, I have to say, I, I, one of the reasons I love the season so much is I just feel like he is entering a pantheon of like just great television leading men. And I know that in the old days, that might be a pejorative baked into that, um, you know, that, that it's limited somehow that he's a television leading man. But I, I I think the opposite. I mean, he's just so deeply compelling and empathetic and charismatic and funny that 
everything that he does on screen, we buy into, even when he's acting in ways that are against his own self-interest or even just kind of (laughs) screwing up, you know, which he does throughout the season. What was that like collaborating with him so directly and giving him a chance to spin in so many different directions? It was, it was amazing. I mean, Will is obviously an incredible actor, but you know, he also was an, an executive producer on the show. And so we were working together from the very beginning when, again, we didn't even know what this guy's name would be. And so, you know, he just, he's a writer himself. He's so smart. And it was just like a dream to get to, to work with him and to build this character together and to kind of push it in different directions together. You know, I think, um, with him too, it just always was exciting to have this total collaboration, right? Where he's so kind to everyone. And it's, it's really just like from the beginning, a situation where he's just there and like has his sleeves rolled up and wants to make something special. And um, I think, you know, it was just, it was an incredible experience. I think working with him and with Jessica together and really trying to, have it be this kind of loose and open thing where there's a feedback loop and and the actors are informing the characters and vice versa. You know, not that there's really anything of, of Marcus in Will, but just that he was part of the decision-making process and that it was kind of, you know, made for him. You know, and I think especially to your point about being able to kind of play against his extreme likability as a person, you know, it was fun to be able to put this character through the ringer, have him do some sort of unsavory stuff or to kind of follow this guy down the rabbit hole, have him make the wrong choices and, and let him be, you know, hopefully complex and, 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 and weird. And, and that Will is like, you know, Tom Hanks or something. So you just kind of roll with it. They are both secretly ripped. Will and Marcus. That was one thing <laughs> that you definitely steered into. Yeah. That was where we, they, there was just no getting around it. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> all, the, all those shirtless scenes. Um, Sam, with when you're doing something that is an anthology series, but that is also, I guess it's an anthology season to season, but it has some connective tissue. I was curious whether or not in the background for you, for Rochelle and Bridget and for Will, uh, what role season one plays in it? Obviously, without giving too much away, Darby plays a role in this season, albeit pretty, you know, peripheral. And I was curious whether or not there were things from the first season that you were like, these are certain uh, qualities that I think are inherent to the series that I want to continue, that I want to keep seeing us explore versus we could go in a completely different direction. I don't necessarily want to hit these same beats, these same emotional notes. Yeah, I think, you know, on a plot level, we would talk about it a lot. I think we were very conscious of wanting season two to kind of zig where season one zagged maybe. And, you know, I think one of the things that, has been important to me about this show from the beginning is the idea that with every new story that we tell, um, we're sort of just making it muddier and muddier. And we're not necessarily, we're not saying any one thing about any of it so that it's not really like, Oh, we have answers to questions about what it's like to be in a relationship, but that instead it can just ring true hopefully. And that these sort of more honest depictions remind people of their own lives, but aren't necessarily us saying we know anything. And and so I think wanting to take the opportunity in season two to depict pregnancy in different ways or depict any number of kind of plot points or, you know, subject matters um, so that it's, it's, you know, again, just, just less of a kind of message thing and more just this weird twisty kind of mess of 
of this kind of compendium of, of romantic details. And, you know, I think as far as devices that we kind of carried over, there was, you know, thinking about the, the kind of style and the tone of the show as, as like a container um, that would kind of remain consistent or like a, like a lens or magnifying glass or something, but that kind of everything else was going to, what is going to change so much um, that we really wanted to lean into that and, and, you know, have certain things carry over um, narration being one of them uh, among other things, but um, you know, like just certain elements that, that I think would remind anyone that did watch season one, you know, of that, of that first story and, and kind of help it feel a little more cohesive. I've said this before in the podcast, but my favorite genre of, of podcast to listen to in my free time is uh, dudes talking about their therapy experiences. And this is <laughs> so not podcasts. Whole, so podcasts. Uh, no, there's two kinds of podcasts talking about therapy or indicating clearly and cluelessly that you need therapy. There's, you know, I feel like it's a fine line. The funny the thing reason- is he's saying this, but like whatever he texts me about listening to podcasts, he's listening yeah. to Bill. <laughs> Well, you know, I think everyone could use some self-reflection now and again. I think um, what I what I wanted to ask you about specifically, though, in relation to the season two of the show was, you know, the, the framework is romance and, you know, there are relationships that run throughout each episode around throughout the season. But one of the things I was struck by in season two particularly was a continuing return to this idea that Marcus needs to get it together and be a full adult before he can be fully present in a relationship. And I thought you did some really nice work in pushing that ball up the hill throughout, you know, that, that there are good things and maybe wrong things about the women that he encounters along the way, or the, even the relationships that he observes among his friends, but that he just fundamentally isn't ready, you know, and that he needs work to do on himself. And that can be a slow and kind of circuitous, if not torturous journey. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, you know, and that, and that was, that was something that was important to us both seasons, you know, really it's, it's funny. I, I remember thinking about like, you know, shows I love obviously, but you watch Seinfeld or something and every episode is like, okay, what's wrong with this person? You know, she has man hands or you watch sex in the city and the guy has skid marks in his underwear. Like it's always something's wrong with the other person. And there was something fun about going, okay, let's make the main character, the asshole, so to speak. And, and that way these people who are coming into their lives can kind of, you know, teach them new things or not, but be part of that journey and, and, and be part of that kind of, you know, what, what we need to, to have this person be like at the end of it, what, what they need to change, what they need to work on to, to be ready for someone else. What made you choose publishing as the sort of professional <laughs> my, like that Marcus was going to be working? Cause I thought it was a really, it, it, it provided some of the more comic moments of, of this season, but I also thought it was an interesting, uh, sort of platform to go in a lot of different directions and talking about a lot of different issues from, from there. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was something that came out of the writer's room where we just, I remember there was maybe, you know, there were like a couple days where everyone was just like fashion designer, this, that, you know, you're just sort of pitching any blue sky and anything. And I think ultimately there was something um, that kind of, you know, on a superficial level, we've always tried to give the show a kind of literary feeling. So, you know, with the narrator, these kind of chapters and the way that the, the way that the episodes are broken up, wanting it to feel like a book of short stories or something. So there was something fun, I think about putting the character in that world, but you know, a lot of it too, just came from, again, the discussions in the writer's room and wanting to tell Marcus's story, having him be this black man in this largely white workspace. And that there was something that felt sort of unique to us about that setting and, and, and being able to, you know, 
put in with characters like his boss or 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 like that influencer and and stuff like that. I think we just started pitching on it and and it stuck. I want to ask you about one of the shows I think consistent triumphs, which is casting. And um, you know, obviously with the framework that you have, you can bring in people for fun guest turns and they can do things that might surprise us or just seems like it's a fun hang to do. Um it also, you know, for example, Blair Underwood just showing up and just owning it and crushing it for a couple scenes, um, but also giving us a chance to see people in different contexts than we've seen them before. Like Punky Johnson is awesome on this show. And for people who only seen her on SNL, you know, that might be uh, revelatory. All this is built up to say that um, Comedian CP is like, this is one of my favorite TV performances <laughs> definitely of the year, maybe of the last few years. I I, I, I think the, like where I hooked up to some sort of machinery, like my pulse would quicken every time he came on the screen because I was just <laughs> going to be happy. How do you stumble? It's not I, I, stumbling makes it seem like there's, you know, this is all yeah. accidental. It's not obviously you have casting people and you're watching people and you're reading people. But I guess I want to ask you specifically about him. But then maybe there's a way to sort of branch it out into the casting in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think just talking about CP, like right off the bat, obviously he's a force of nature. You know, we had written that character and you know, you want the, you always want the the sort of friend characters to to feel real, but he was able to make the character so funny. And it got to a point where just the stuff that we were writing for him, even if they were solid jokes, just whatever came out of his mouth was always better. And so even just from the very beginning, like I remember that first episode, you know, we were like, oh, you know, he has this phone call scene with, with Marcus. We have to lay the pipe of like what his job is that he sells these box seats or whatever. And I remember just, it was like, okay, let's put a phone on his desk. And I just said, you know, CP, just take a call while you're on with Marcus and just get out like a couple lines about, you know, your job. And he went on a crazy tear that includes obviously what's in the episode, which is like a whole thing about a linguine bar at this like imaginary <laughs> Italian guy that he's invented. And it was just beyond belief. And like, I remember shooting those and I literally had to go to the other side of the soundstage. And I was just listening on my headphones because I was like crying with laughter and I had to bury my face in like a two by four on the wall, basically. And it was just always like that. You know, we would just, and then the whole crew, I mean, it's funny. Normally they say like, if, if people are laughing on set, it's a bad sign, you know, it can be like an in joke or something like that, but that doesn't ultimately play. But everyone was just like, you know, crying whenever he was, whenever he was on set and it was, you know, really fun to work with him. And as far as, you know, but I, I just got to jump yeah. in because he's not just a comedian though. Like, right. He's really compelling and he's playing totally. this character. I mean, it's, it's really fantastic. It's really exciting because totally. you can hire a totally. funny comedian who can drop jokes and yes. improv. But this guy's Definitely. the total package. He was great. Definitely. Definitely. And I think, you know, and I think a lot of it's, it's, it's something I've always kind of prescribed to is like, the comedy is better when it's coming from a real place like that anyway. And so I think it's kind of, I, I do see it as, as sort of one and the same where it's, it's, you know, he's making these jokes, but you know, CP, uh, you know, in real life, he is a dad, he has two daughters, you know, and he's this incredible and sweet and, and sort of um, just amazing family man. And so I think he was able to kind of key into that and, and really, you know, have it again, just feel a little more real. Um, because he is so good and it was just awesome to get to watch him work and, and watch him and Will and Ariane all together was so fun. And, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the cast um, this year is just like a total embarrassment of riches. It was really fun to put together and I just feel super lucky. I mean, to a person, every single person was just like, it's, it felt like a murderer's row. So I think we just felt lucky to get to work with them and, 
and it was amazing to get to kind of write to this cast and 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 again you know try to have a, a sort of feedback loop there you know, I was reading an interview you did with Will, I think it was an EW or something, and he was talking about watching the first season of the show, and that the thing that jumped out at him, he had a line that I'm sure was just something that he said in passing, but it did, it did leap out at me, was that he didn't think the show was at all cute. And uh, that unlocked something for me, too, in my way of like articulating why I like it, which is not to say that I'm not into cute sometimes, mm-hmm. but when you're doing something that is inherently has romantic elements and it has some comedic elements, although I really hesitate to call this a rom-com per se. It's like, I think you can really easily fall into saccharine. You can really fall into cute. And I think you can really do that also in, in TV. It's, it's easy probably to rely on, let's have like these hammer moments every five to seven minutes that are just going to feel adorable and, and memeable or whatever. But, but aside from what the characters are sort of going through, is there a resistance on the part of the creative team and the show to just try to like let these people breathe and walk around and talk rather than have them put into adorable situations that like comedy or romance blossoms from. Definitely. Definitely. You know, I think, I think it's funny because it is nominally a romantic comedy, but I have always kind of felt like, you know, we try to use it as a little bit of a Trojan horse and, and really for us, it's, you know, the sense pretentious trying, trying to make it really like a more of a character study. And and that it's just about these people and they're growing up and, and, and they date. And that's a big part of, of how they sort of grow. But I think we, you know, none of us were really ever interested in like rom-coms, so to speak. You know, I mean, obviously we love them and, and we love a lot of them, but I think we were always thinking more about like the before sunrise movies and stuff like that, where it is just, it's more organic. It's people talking, they're walking around. What does that feel like? And even with these kind of bigger romantic moments that almost the point is, People are just like bumping into each other. It's not some big sweeping thing. And, and, you know, always trying to kind of kick it up a notch, elevate it so that it feels commercial and feels fun. But yeah, definitely always trying to find ways to, to have it cue closer to real life than, than, than to romantic comedy and, and really just using that as, um, I don't know, as, as bait, I guess. Because I, I didn't uh, watch the morning show season two. Uh, your show gave me my do you, first. Do you want me om- to recap it for you right now? Yeah, let's take that off air because <laughs> I do know one thing. This is, but I do know enough to, to to form this question, which is: this was your show is my first experience of. Oh God, they're doing twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. boy, I got to buckle up. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your chronology of developing this season? Where were you in the process when 2020 happened? And also, <laughs> where were you in your decision-making process and how did it develop in terms of how you wanted to let that terrible reality play in your escape, which a show that can often be an escape from reality? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's funny. We've always tried to hit this kind of middle, the sweet spot of like, we call it relatable escapism, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so it is sure. this kind of weird um, double-edged, you know, not double-edged sword, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a two-sided coin. And, and I think with the pandemic stuff, you know, honestly, it, it really came from the fact that we'd been so specific about time in the first season and that that was a fun way for us to go, Oh, it's the summer of 2015. So this Fetty Wap song is playing at this roof party or Lynn Sanity happens. And, and it did feel like we had kind of written ourselves into a corner because, you know, having this be a universe where 
when sanity exists, but COVID doesn't just did feel kind of off. Um, or if we kind of just stopped being specific about time conveniently. And I think, you know, it was, it was funny. We were, we were super lucky. We basically shot the ending, the final scene of season one, we shot on March 12th, 2020. And we were in the middle of a week of pickups and we only got the first half of the week and we shut down the morning of the 13th and I was on a plane back home to LA and we finished the show remotely and cut it. And so it was this kind of really weird situation where the entire first season was posted and released remotely. And then, you know, the writer's room for, for season two was remote, but that was all sort of cleanly on the other side of all the pandemic stuff. So we had kind of had a few months of, you know, um, like we say in the show, the roasting whole chickens and watching Tiger King or whatever. Right. And, you know, and then, and then we got back in, in the room, put this room together and, and started working on season two. And I think really it was just, um, especially as we built this character and thought about Marcus as being someone who's sort of so driven by what other people think, or he's so kind of consumed with self-consciousness that it made sense to put him in a situation where all of a sudden kind of mm-hmm. everyone else is stripped away and he's forced to kind of sit with himself. Is it messed up that like the, the the moment that gutted me was when that wonderful Brooklyn cafe that you keep coming back to is suddenly takeout only? <laughs> that, 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 does that make me a sociopath or does that just make me not ready to fully engage with my feelings? No, that, that, was, that, that one scene was just like, that hit me. Yeah, that was actually, that was when the, I remember that day, people on the crew coming up to me and being like, this is really, this feels crazy. And just people were, I think people had a visceral reaction to that set. You know? yeah. when, were you sh- when were you shooting? When was the season shot? We shot over the summer. So we shot from May to August. Of this year. Okay. Of, of, of this year, yeah. yeah we were kind so of you were that. shooting when, when we, everything was better for yeah, a couple we, weeks. Yeah, we were, we were in like the perfect kind of everyone's vaccinated. COVID is gone. Right. You know? and, then, and then Delta kind of came out right when we wrapped. Can I ask one question um, specifically to that episode, which is episode nine, basically, which mm-hmm. is the 2020 <laughs> episode. Um, again, one of the... Th- you know, much like the year that we all experienced, there's the COVID hit and then there's um, the social justice movement spilling out onto the streets and spilling out, you know, in kind of very essential and messy ways into Marcus's professional life, not his personal life. That was, I found, I found that whole sequence very compelling and very interesting. And I just wondered what that was like as a balancing act, because in the episode, Marcus's, you know, kind of, uh, untrustworthy ally coworkers or bosses are trying to sort of co-opt his blackness into their corporate experience. And it spills out as, you know, as a would be white ally talking to, I would imagine another, what was the experience like of crafting that moment and getting that tone right. And in a way that felt true to the experience of a character like Marcus. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously telling the story of 2020, that's such an inextricable part of the year. And, you know, with everything in the season, we tried to kind of walk a line where we're not ignoring Marcus's blackness. We're not pretending that this is not, you know, a, a component of his life, but we also just want to tell a story where this guy can be himself and, 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 and just live, just be, and, you know, in, in, in kind of crafting, especially those moments in, in 209, you know, it was actually will, um, will himself, I don't know if this is like, the WGA is going to come after me or something, but Will wrote that speech, his quitting speech. And that was something where, again, it was sort of like the way I was talking about just, you know, giving CP the the office phone and, and, and letting him go for it. Um, I just remember sitting with Will in his trailer one day when we got rained out and, 
and talking that through and him writing it and, and really just, you know, pouring, pouring himself into it and, you know, just wanting to be able to hit, you know, aspects of, of, of that without hitting anyone over the head with it. And, and I don't know, trying to address it without addressing it and, and hoping that it was sort of subtle, but, but there. I thought that the way that that, his professional frustration was sort of threaded throughout the entire season was really great though. I mean, even from the beginning, he's, you know, he's got the raise issue. He's got his, whether or not his father sort of sees him as a success. And I think he's got his burgeoning own creative itch. He wants to scratch that you kind of get like these little notes before the dam breaks that in the second to last episode. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, some of that stuff is, accidental and then mm-hmm. you just embrace it in retrospect when you right. kind of get through i mean andy i know you know like what it what it's like to uh make a season of tv and it's not always in, that you're making the choices on purpose um sometimes you take credit you just, for them you, later exactly exactly <laughs> yeah, just take so the what w I mean to yeah. say is, what i mean to say is that was all what yeah. we envisioned from the beginning um no but I, I, you know anyway thank you yeah after, after getting through that 2020 episode i was curious as somebody making tv are you and, you know, this may not be up to you because COVID may not be done with us anyway. But were you like, this is not something I'm interested in incorporating into my storytelling any longer? Because, well, it's what? very up. The show is very optimistic yes. about the tail it's end like, of the pandemic. We're eating I mean, outdoors. We're vaccinated. We're going are. to the Bahamas. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Everything seems super good pretty quick, <laughs> which I really respect. Love Life yep, Season play. 3 colon Omicron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. All well, right, but you know, yeah. Did, did you find that to be like a not? I don't want to say uh, good, but like a interesting creative challenge that you are now like. I guess this is what I will be writing about for the next five years, or you're like <laughs> I'm, I'm all good. Get me on the Succession season three plan where where COVID is in the rearview mirror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, it was definitely cathartic. Um, I definitely, you know, feel like we've been taking the show one step at a time. So. Um, if we're lucky enough to do more of it, I don't know what we'll do. It probably won't be my favorite part, figuring out how to address COVID, but you know, even towards the end there, and you guys are kind of, you know, alluding to this already, we ran into like speculative sci-fi, you know, in a way that (laughs) I never liked to. Right. But, but we didn't really know what else to do. Um, so yeah, it's funny. I remember being on the set and being like, are we imagining a future with masks or without? And I remember saying like, Oh, I guess let's just, I'd rather assume there aren't going to be masks and be wrong than, Assume that we're, you know, always going to be wearing masks. And, on a personal yeah. basis, you yada yada the two things that I least wanted to see and least wanted to think about, which was the end of the pandemic and right. writing a book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> successfully finishing edits on a yeah. book. Let's say, like, those exactly, are the two things exactly. that I just like. That's good. I'm good. I want to mask <laughs> off, and I wanted to be on the. Be- you on should the get charts, into you know the multiverse, I mean? though, Sam. Where you're like, and now the Knicks, mm-hmm. they're going to beat the go. Hawks. You know, it's going to be great. I, when you started your go. first question, Chris, I thought you were going to be like, this show is firmly set in the Darby verse. However. <laughs> I did think that's where you were going yeah. with it. Julius Randle destroys Trey Young, <laughs> five game victory in the first round. Nick's that's going. A great idea. Well, yeah. Hawk, Hawkeye, we were talking about doing season three about Hawkeye. So it'll be good. <laughs> yes. Crossover. So this is the question um, that, that no showrunner wants, but I, but I am curious about how far along you are in thinking about what other types of stories you'd want to tell. Like what, uh, they're, they're obviously, when you're telling a story about young or youngish people in New York City, Andy, he just told us it's a guy, he's an archer. He's also an Avenger. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Haley Steinfeld is the is the supporting uh no. Um yeah, no, I mean I, I think um one of the things, you know, 
season two was an experiment because again, at the very beginning, I was like, oh, great. You know, we're going to reset every year. I, I really didn't think that we were going to be lucky enough to make more than one season of this show. And, and so we were a little bit of like the dog that caught the car at first, but I think there was something really amazing and fun about the way it came together this year. And, and again, just the immense collaboration that it took. Um, and I think, you know, I've joked that like, I want it to be like the Nancy Myers version of SVU or something. Like I want it to go on forever and um, be like a romantic procedural or something essentially, because it really is just this format. So I think for me, you know, even going back to talking about Will and 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 the kind of origins of this character, the, the genesis of this season, it's going to be just about you know finding actors that are that are interesting to build seasons around and and working with them to build the characters, um, bringing in you know showrunners who you know can can sort of write from or speak to that experience, you know, obviously wanting you know all of the characters to be as different as possible from each other and, and exploring, you know, the lives of LGBT characters and, and, you know, any, any um, number of different, you know, situations and backgrounds and, and um, just going from there. Well, I think it, I just think it's really interesting and admirable because it's not, this is too much pressure for a project that is also just about people falling in and out of love. But I do think that it's, your show is a really interesting um, mechanism and opportunity to sort of show what, kind of humble, open-minded storytelling can be like in what is generally a, a sort of a fraught moment for the industry, if not the country. You know, I, I, when you were talking before about about Will's character, about Marcus, his blackness being essential to his character, but not being the defining trait of the character. Um, I mean, this is what everyone is trying to work on being better at communicating, you know, and the res- and the rewards are huge, but it is, it's difficult and it requires, you know, challenging conversations and interesting collaborations. And, and I'm excited that you made this season of television under those um, and in that framework and excited to hear where it can go next. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah, and it was a really, really impressive second season and I hope you get to do more and can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys. Really an honor. I appreciate it. <laughs>